Hello and good morning to you, church. I'm Harold Kim and happy to be one of the pastors here and very honored to bring to you God's word this morning. I've entitled it uh, Grace and Race, One More for the Gospel. And this is in view of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday that we celebrated last Monday. And also really in view of our current uh, cultural and political and social climate. So I hope that God would use this powerfully and train us or even change us in the gospel when it comes to matters of race. So if you have your Bibles, it'll also be projected overhead. The Gospel of John, chapter four, I joke I just cannot get away from this gospel. We did not go over this passage where Jesus meets the woman of Samaria at the well, but we come back to it now. Verses four through nine, In verses 21 to 26, let's give our attention to this. I'll read it for us. And he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, in verses 21 through 26, later on in the conversation, Jesus exposes that she has had five husbands, living with the sixth, offers the gift of spiritual, eternal living water that would climactically quench her thirst, and we pick up at verses 21 through 26. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word for us today. One more for the gospel. That's what we earnestly desire and pray for. That's what we have been strategically planning for. That's what I myself have been reprioritizing even into my weekly and personal schedule so that I and our church would seek and win one more friend to Christ and raise one more disciple for the sake of Christ. Now, how did Jesus go about doing that? Who was one more for the gospel for Jesus? Well, it wouldn't be hard to guess that in John chapter 3, Jesus goes after a very educated, uh, religious, intelligent, synagogue attending, wealthy, influential Jewish male. That's Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But he also goes after, in John chapter 4, a Samaritan woman who is different in every respect. In fact, she's so different that in verse 27, 
Jesus' male disciples who went to go get him lunch come back and they say aloud, Jesus, why are you talking to her? Let me translate that. Jesus, why are you wasting your time and energy and priority? Why are you crossing all these boundaries? Why are you talking to her? You see, everyone has a natural target group. Our church has a natural target audience. It's kind of like what you roll out of bed and can just naturally do. It's your natural contacts, your natural interests, your natural affinities. It's just people who just connect with you. Fine. That's good. We should hit that target. But Jesus shows he doesn't just hit the target. He goes well outside what might be normal and natural when it comes to contacts and especially when it comes to loving and winning one more for the gospel. Jesus breaks through all kinds of barriers. I'll just mention four quickly as we start. He breaks through the gender barrier. She's a woman in Jesus' day. This is not appropriate in public for a man, a stranger, and another woman just to be talking like this at the well of all places. He breaks through the barrier of gender. He breaks through the barrier of moral goodness, goodness. She's had five husbands. She's living with the sixth. Jesus breaks through the moral goodness. Jesus also breaks through, incredibly, the barrier of what I would say, she doesn't have a very acute, clear grasp of God. Jesus tells her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. So she doesn't have a really good grasp of God. And fourth, fourth, She's from Samaria, and they tend to worship God at Mount Gerizim. It's reserved for a certain geography. You see, he crosses geographic boundaries. So I'm just going to spend time on the final two. We don't have time for all four, gender, goodness. But the final two, grasp of God, let's call that a theological barrier, is it not? And the fourth, last one, geographic, I'm just going to stretch it and say that's a racial barrier. Jesus came down to break through every single barrier. There's no wall that he doesn't knock down. There's no lie that he doesn't tear down. His reckless love breaks them all down. We're just going to look at the two barriers he breaks down here. Theological and racial. Now, before we start, please do not assume, my friends, that theological issues have nothing to do with racial issues. Jesus breaks through both. They're interrelated and so must we. Okay, first. A theological issue, a theological barrier. The Samaritan woman was culturally religious, culturally spiritual. She was worshipful, but she did not know much about the God they worshipped. So Jesus comes after her. Jesus reveals himself for the woman to learn. And she does learn real quick. It's exponential. There's a progressive learning curve here. In verse 9, she calls him a Jew. I observe you're a Jewish man. That's all she thinks of him. Verse 12, then she says, you must be greater than Jacob, one of the great Jewish forefathers. Then in verse 19, she grows into the knowledge you must be one of the prophets. Verse 25 she hints at it. I know that the Messiah is coming. She's trying to connect the dots. Maybe you're the Messiah. And then verse 26, the climactic revelation. 
I am he who speaks to you. And this is wondrous grace. It goes beyond all education or science or study or classroom or intelligence or moral goodness or geography or gender or even sexuality. No one arrives at a knowledge of Jesus until Jesus reveals himself to you. It's a gracious act where he crosses theological barriers. And this story is a good illustration of John 3.16. That indeed, whosoever, whoever, comes to Jesus and believes in him shall be saved. Saved from what? What your sins deserve. But this story is also a love story. I'd like to look at it from that angle. I think it's more of a love story. Where a woman who's tried man after man after man after man after man and is on the sixth man falls in love with the God-man who quenches her thirst, Jesus Christ. How did she fall in love? How does anyone really fall in love? Well, it does require some facts. It requires content. It requires data. It requires information. Like you collect all these evidences about a person over different situations on different days and you just start forming this characterization or picture in your heart, right? Do you not? Love requires some knowledge. There's no way around it. And not just for a person. This is for music or art or sports. You get really, really educated about anything that you love. You know, about 16 years ago, when I was match made or introduced, there was no way I would have met Sonia on my own. She was living in Miami, Florida. I was pastoring in my first pastorate in Virginia. And I called her and we talked and we talked. And that's all we did. We just talked and talked and talked. Three weeks straight, every night, she had no picture of me. And she fell in love with, obviously, this voice. <laughs> Things about me. My sense of humor. What I like, what I don't like. I absolutely fell in love with her, too. I had her picture, though, too. But <laughs> she fell in love with knowledge. She fell in love with some things about Harold. And, you know, truth be told... When I flew into the wrong airport of Orlando and she drove up from Miami and she saw me for the first time come out of the airplane, it really backfired. When she did see me, she had to decide to still stay with me, but it was talking that won her heart. Thank God. 16 years later, last night around 11.30, we're laying in bed. I'm getting old. I actually fall asleep now before midnight. That's a first. That is actually a first. And I'm talking to her about my heart and church and ministry and tomorrow's message. And she just at one point just says, Harold, can you please just stop talking? <laughs> why did I throw that in? I don't know why I throw it in. That's just love. <laughs> but you know, she still surprises me once in a while. And I know I surprise her. For you to fall in love, it requires some knowledge. And for you to really grow in love, you have to grow in knowledge. The Samaritan woman could not have fallen in love with Jesus just through a song about Jesus. She had to get personal revelation. 
She had to learn. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it's more like a, a benediction. It's like a final greeting. But it reads this. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I remember growing up in the 80s as an 80s child, a professional of youth group camps. I went to so many. We used to sing this song. Do you love your Jesus? I would not sing it for you, but do you love your Jesus? Do you love your Jesus? And then they kind of single out one person. Most people don't like that, but extroverts who are attention hungry loved it. And when you got called out, do you love your Jesus? All you had to do was just sing about it as loudly as you can, as obnoxiously as you can. I love my Jesus. It's a great song. But I'm afraid a lot of us, when we ask you a question, do you really love your Jesus? It pretty much amounts to just saying the question back. Yeah, I love my Jesus. Can you tell me why? Can you tell me something about him? Like, why does he stand out from any other God or lover? What makes him tick? What makes him happy? What makes him sad? Does he have a favorite color? What does he feel about this issue? What is he really thinking when you think that? Can you give me something about why he's better than your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse or even your best friend? You know, John Piper kind of joked. He said, a lot of our theologies and knowledge of God is about two or three songs at best, just on repeat. And if we ask you, why do you love your Jesus? Can you tell me something about Jesus that you love? Most people will answer, well, I love my Jesus because I feel so thrilled. I feel so comforted. I feel so happy. I feel so for for forgiven. I feel so secure. You see, it's all about my feelings, my experiences. It's about certain chords or tears or, or repetitions that I've gone through. But again, it's very little about Jesus it's more about what you feel. And my friend, none of us in this room are really gonna grow to become Christ-like, great maturing disciples of Jesus apart from learning more about Jesus. Learning more about Jesus. You know, Hillsong's, Hillsong, that church, that moment, they make great music. They really do. We sing a lot of them. I love them. But they do not make great maturing Christians all by themselves. They make great music. But they will never make great maturing Christians all by themselves. Now, if this morning you do recognize or feel, you know, I'm really chasing a certain feeling, a general theoretical idea of God. And yeah, I, I count myself as spiritual and, and deep. And I know it's eternally significant. It matters. Jesus crosses all barriers. If you don't know much, great, start there. If you, don't, if you know wrong things, great, Jesus will correct it. And we have before us in his word a learning curve that is nuclear demand. I mean, it, you can't even fathom how much we can learn about God and Jesus through his word and his spirit well beyond anything the Samaritan woman could have fathomed at the well. Here, right now, 
Jesus comes and seeks after worshipers in what? In spirit and truth. What does that mean? Jesus wants worshipers in spirit and truth. Without getting into all the theological nuances and commentaries, I will tell you, it means at least in spirit, what does that sound like? Well, emotion, experience. It means at least your heart, truth, mind. It means at least that. So I love, I love that Jesus so wants to get to know me and you. And Jesus reveals himself so you can really get to know him. That's how you fall in love and that's how you grow in love for him. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, here's a second barrier. Here's a second barrier that Jesus loves to cross. It's a racial one. It's a racial one. Oh, verse nine. The woman well knows and the commentator, the author John says, she cannot believe that Jesus is spending time to speak with her directly, quote, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, end quote. Jesus breaks through theological barriers and then he breaks through every racial barrier. Jesus came to break through every racial barrier. There's no prerequisites. There's no requirements. There's no totem pole or rankings according to the kingdom of God. You know, every Yom Kippur, faithful Jews confess aloud, we are Jonah. We are Jonah. We went through that sermon series when we launched this placentia site. If you missed out, go back and listen to it. The point of the story of Jonah is that God had to break through his own racism so that Jonah can reach one more for the gospel. Racially, Samaritans were despised as a mixed race. Intermarriage, looked down on. Racially, Samaritans were known as racial mutts. <laughs> what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He makes an appointment to meet with a racial mutt, who also happens to be a woman, at the sixth hour. This is inconvenient for Jesus. Sixth hour is high noon. It's when it's the hottest. It's when you're the most thirsty. It's when you're the most drained. <laughs> this also explains why he knew he would meet the Samaritan woman at that time. Because the midday noon heat was a lot milder for her than the insults and slander and alienation and isolation she felt from all the women of that town. No one goes out and draws water at high noon. You would go when it's cool or you would have some other people with you to help you out. But this woman comes by herself. Do you understand what this Samaritan woman was feeling? She was completely a loner. Nobody else wanted to be around her. Nobody else wanted her. Nobody else even wanted to be near her. But here's Jesus who crosses all those boundaries. And he goes after someone that nobody else wants. And here... As she draws water, Jesus says, I've got a water that'll spring up in your heart that'll quench that thirst that's driving it to death. Jesus crossed the lack of a grasp of God, a theological barrier, and then Jesus crossed a racial barrier. My friends, this morning, this is not a peripheral part of the gospel 
This is not a result of the gospel. This is not an application of the gospel. This is not on certain times we should talk about these things, part of the gospel. No, no, no. When Jesus crossed theological and racial barriers, you know, that's not a part of the gospel. It is the gospel. It is the gospel. They go hand in hand. Now, as your pastor, before I... Well, not even before. I'm not going to address overt, obvious forms and expressions and words and attitudes of racism. I honor this crowd too much. I respect it too much. I'm sure you know what those... I'm not going to talk about obvious racism. But before I address racism against other people, I do want to address a particular form of racism that tends to happen within Asian Americans. Asian Americans. Now, if you're not Asian American, I do not mean to exclude you in any way, shape, or form, but please listen in. The majority of our church happens to be Asian American, and this must, must be addressed to the gospel. Let me call the first form of racism that I think appears most in Asian Americans, it's called reverse racism. Reverse racism. Now, reverse racism, from my personal and pastoral and social, and this is over 25 to 30 years, it's not scientific, but I am convinced that perhaps no other race struggles more with loathing ourselves or not liking ourselves and wanting to be of a different race than Asian Americans. It's called reverse racism. And there's a whole kind of prevailing thought, I'll give a name to it, it's present in our media and our education and relationships and practices and your corporations and even in churches. Sadly, even in the church this happens. It's the ideal of white normativity. White normativity. What is white normativity? White normativity is a prevailing belief and assumption that white is right. That white is best. That white is might. That white is what people all should really long to become. White normativity. And I will tell you, I started with myself. I went out to the East Coast for about 10 years, studied up and down, served at white churches. And in a lot of ways, I was running away because of reverse racism. I wanted to, quote, unquote, experience the world outside of Asian American Christian circles or bubbles. And I wanted to see, is the grass greener on the other side? And I found out, no, it's not. You know, it's not. There's incredible pros and cons on all sides. But all sides need to be redeemed and completely fixed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reverse racism. I don't know how many times, I would not say it happened every day or every month, but I don't know, four or five times a year up and down the East Coast, I'd go around to conferences and retreats and people would come to me who are non-Asian and say, hey, where are you from? Ah, Southern California. No, no, I mean, like, where are you really from? Torrance in Southern California. <laughs> no, 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 no. Where are you really, really from? Are you asking me where I was born? Yes, I was born in Seoul, South Korea, but I was three months old when my parents immigrated here. So I'm like, American as can be, except the three months. In Tennessee, I remember a conference on the Westminster Confession of Faith. And one of the most well-meaning kind of southern ladies came up to me after I gave some kind of 
talk and she heard me talk. She goes, wow, thank you, Reverend Kim. You speak English real good. I said, thank you. You do too. I didn't say that. If I were with you, I should have said that. Last week, a good friend of our church and mine, Reverend Joel Kim, became the president of Westminster Seminary in California. I am proud of that kind of equity and inclusion at the table. That's not a move of diversity. Diversity is where you just include people on the team and they always stay on the bench. Equity is where they actually get to start. Equity is actually they get to coach. Equity is actually they become presidents. And at the reception of Joel Kim's inauguration, another well-meaning Dutch Reformed lady came up to me, saw my name tag, Pastor Harold Kim, Reverend Kim. Are you related to Joel? And I said, I wish I were. He's a stud. We're related by blood in Jesus Christ. He's like, wow, but you have the same last name. I said, yeah, go figure. I was tempted to say, again, you know, but I am related to Kim Jong-un, the president of North Korea. And I just wanted to see what kind of reaction she would make. Now, my friends, white normativity isn't just racial ignorance or insensitivity, which bothers me very little. And should bother all of us very little, all across the races. Ignorance, insensitivity, okay, okay. But white normativity, that is the prevailing assumption, systems, institutions, attitudes, and cultural practices that according to my friend, Reverend Duke Kwan, a church planter of Grace Meridian Hill in downtown Washington, D.C., when he gave a a talk at the uh, Presbyterian Church in America General Assembly floor, here's what he shared. White normativity is when we assume that non-white individuals are only capable of reaching their own kind. And we have to use all kinds of qualifiers. Oh, you see, that's a ethnic ministry. Because you're an ethnic guy, you're going to do ethnic ministry. Oh, you're an urban guy, you're going to do urban ministry. Oh, you're an international, so you can only do international ministry. Or you're going to do the missions or outreach ministry. While the whole time we call ministry to a white majority crowd is simply what? Ministry. White normativity is a lie that you are less than best, less than right, less than whole, less capable if you are just not white. But this, my friends, is completely antithetical to God's design. It betrays the gospel and it is completely counter to the global non-white origins of the gospel and where the gospel is growing best right now. Because what is the gospel? What is Christ Central all about? Certainly not about one dominant culture. Christ Central is all about the fact that when Jesus came to bleed and die for you and me, He says, I welcome you to a new community, a new family called a church where you don't have to be more of anything. I remember when that first clicked while I was sitting in Princeton Seminary and a professor said these words just nonchalantly and my heart erupted. The gospel of Jesus Christ means the church is the 
last place or last community in which anyone of any racial background should have to feel like you have to be more of anything. You see, my friends, can I ask you a question on reverse racism? How can you and I authentically and effectively and enduringly love someone else of another race? How can you and I really serve and forgive someone in a different color of skin if you've never been loved and served in your own? If Asian American Christians don't actually really feel like you have been absolutely loved and designed and gifted and forgiven and served and tailor-made, actually, to reach across all cultures, I beg you to answer me this question. How in the world are you going to serve others? That's reverse racism. But thank God Jesus came to cleanse my reverse racist heart. Here's a second form. I'll call it passive racism, passive racism. I believe and have observed that Asian Americans can tend to be the most stoic or uninvolved, indifferent, and stay out of the racial type of wars because it just frankly doesn't directly affect me. Asian Americans are standing by, left almost comfortable and content for just white people and black people to duke it out which actually lends itself to the whole binary worldview, which is a problem in the first place, that it's just about black and white. Now, whereas white normativity is moral silence on social issues that are ancillary to white communities, but core concerns to black and brown communities, even yellow communities, it should be, so can Asian American churches. What I'm saying is white normative, maybe Southern conservative churches tend to be just like Asian American suburb churches. We just stay out of any issue that has to do with race or social issues. It's this knee-jerk, comfortable reaction to dismiss, oh, those are political Christians, those are more liberal Christians, when in fact, if you ask a black or brown or yellow person, it is not political, it's totally personal. It's completely practical. It's lifelong. It's every day. And there is no gospel, my friend, other than a gospel that would break through those barriers of race and color. So in honor of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who was far from perfect, but God used him to change American culture and society, in a letter from a Birmingham, hill, a Birmingham jail, his letter from Birmingham jail, he offers a scathing critique, which I ask of us to receive humbly, openly, that I think still resonates for us today, for all churches. Quote, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, and a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, 
who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a, quote, more convenient season, end quote. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Martin Luther was assassinated at the age of 39 in Memphis, Tennessee. They're holding an anniversary for him this April 4th this year. I believe he would have been 80-something this year. But my friend... Is this really just for the white moderates? Where a shallow understanding of the gospel might be more counterproductive and counterrepresentative than people who just outright oppose it? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel is that he had to cross every barrier to reach someone like me. If you ever get to visit the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., which I cannot recommend enough, the final thing you'll see is this plaque, this writing. I hope we got it on the slide here. And here's what it reads. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. This is by a Lutheran minister who was an early Nazi supporter, but later in prison for opposing Hitler's regime. Passive racism. Let me close with two applications, my friends. Two applications. Number one, recognize, it's hard, but you gotta have to recognize it. Recognize and repent of overt, reverse, and passive racism in my own heart. Please. Recognize and repent of all forms of racism that is rotting in my own soul. Where I hold on to a past hurt and it's turned into hate. A prejudice has become an onslaught of rage. You know, the least racist person in the world would never boast. I'm the least racist person. Because the least racist person would quickly recognize and repent of his or her racism in their own heart. All racial reconciliations begin here. There's nothing more powerful and practical than this step. Because again, my brothers and sisters, how will we deeply love and serve and love one more for the gospel regardless of skin color, if I have not been first loved and served and accepted in my own. Lest any of us think 
that I had anyone in mind when I prepped this sermon, especially at our church, lest any of you think that this is in some nasty, subtle way, a slight against white Christians. No, no, no. You can, you, you could be, you can be farther from the truth. There's no slight against white Christians. This is just Jesus' own critique and slight against any kind of Christian who thinks it's okay to be racist. And yes, as a South Korean-born, Korean-American Christian today, my blood is indebted for white missionaries who resemble Jesus, who would bleed and die on Korean soil because that's how the gospel of Jesus first came. But recognize and repent. All forms of racism in my own heart. Here's a second. Here's a second. Replace racism with gracism. You like that? <laughs> kind of nice. I just added G. Replace racism with gracism. <laughs> you know, aside from making a little joke about it. But this is how you replace any sinful attitude or habit. The reason why a human heart becomes superior or inferior, looks up to or looks down on any other race is because the human heart has not been secured and healed by grace. And racism will start to be eradicated when you replace it with gracism. How, how, how? Retrace the gospel for you. Retrace what Jesus had to do to come and love and save you. So if there's anybody in this room who's ever felt like, you know, I never felt like I belonged. I was always torn. I never could figure out, is it my parents' generation or the white majority American generation? I, I just always felt like I was in between. If you've ever felt forsaken, you never fit in, You've been on the fringes. You've been marginalized. You've even just totally been isolated or rejected. If you've ever felt any of those things, if you felt like an alien, an immigrant, a stranger, or in exile, this Jesus Christ came especially for you. The gospel is that Jesus had to cross every barrier that actually would put him at a cross to love and save you. There's a really, really explosive passage in John chapter 8, verse 48, where I'll close with, when the Jewish male religious leaders called the, the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to hurl insults against Jesus. And back in those days, if you could think about what is like the worst insult you could say about someone today in public, just think about that. What would that be? But in Jesus' day, the Pharisees came up with a twofold insult. Here's what they said to him. You must be First, a Samaritan, and second, demon-possessed. Jesus, you must be both a Samaritan and demon-possessed. And remarkably, Jesus turns around to only deny the second part. Jesus only turned around to say, no, I'm not possessed by a demon. But I'm very happy to be called a Samaritan. I'm very happy to be identified with a Samaritan. 
And he loved Samaritans so much that he would go and die for them. Retrace the grace of Jesus Christ that would come to an undeserving, outcast, foreigner exile from the kingdom of heaven like me. And then listen and learn and repent. And let's try to do the same. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the riches and the power and the conviction of your word this day. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, reach deep into our hearts, help us to recognize, show us how to repent, show us what to repent from. Every trace of overt, reverse, passive, all kinds of racism that sit there and rot in our souls. Oh, Jesus, may we replay the grace it took for you to love and die for a sinner like me. And may you make us new, make us courageous, help us to speak out and even serve and sacrifice ourselves where the gospel must be shown. Hear us, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.